The rest of you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. Forewarmed is forearmed, they say. Um, so I've had three weeks to think about this sermon, and I'm covering four chapters. So uh, buckle up your seatbelts. We're going to kind of fly through here a little bit. Um, but my goal this morning is to help you to think about who God is and how he works in our lives. I, was, uh, I saw a headline this week. It was, it's, it, it was talking about this guy. He was saying, hey, I, I quit my regular job, found this job where I could uh, work two hours a day and make $250,000 a year, you know. And I was like, you know, part of me was like, oh, cool, two hours a day, $250,000 a year, sounds good, you know. The other side of my brain was like, yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, this is uh, clickbait designed to get me to click on something and to get me to follow some trail just so that he can make money off of me, right? Uh, and it, but at the same time, the clickbait works. Why? Because people want something, right? They want what they want out of life, and uh, they're looking for ways to get it. They think there's some secret knowledge, there's some secret way. If I, yeah, if I could just have a job where I only had to work two hours a day, what would my life be like, right? Because we live in an age where we're looking for security, we're looking for comfort, we're looking for pleasure, and we, it, it seems like, you know what, if, if life wouldn't be so hard, then I could be more joyful, I could have more fun, I could have more of what I want out of life. And in a sense, there's a, uh, a twisted view of, of God that allows this kind of thinking to, to perpetuate itself. It, it's this idea that God is, in a sense, a, a moralistic God that wants you to do the right thing, but he's also therapeutic. That is, the, the best thing that he's, he's wanting to do in your life is to make you more healthy, like to make you just kind of be more happy and healthy. And it, that's his goal in, in, in his existence in ruling the world is to make his subjects happy and healthy, which doesn't sound bad in a sense. Like, wouldn't God want us to be happy and healthy? And yet, it's not the picture of God that the Bible presents. It's a, it's, it's a different picture. A picture that is subtly different. A picture that kind of says, God wouldn't make my life hard, right? Like, if... If my life is hard, it's not because God is involved in making it hard. It's because sin makes my life hard, or my mistakes make my life hard, or others' mistakes make my life hard, or considering the time in which we live, politics make my life hard, right? We're almost to the end of all the political ads, at least for this season. And we also think wealth would make my life easier, right? Like if I just had a little bit more money or I had a little bit more access to entertainment or a little bit more time at least to enjoy that entertainment. Then we live in an age when if you're bored, you can just flip, off, flip on your phone and watch five minutes of some show that you wanted to watch. And entertainment is instantly always available. So life shouldn't be hard, right, if I can have that kind of access to entertainment, in fact, if you have to live a hard life, it's probably because you're dumb, right? Or you messed up somehow because 
God is trying to make your life easy and fun, healthy, never challenging or overwhelming. So if you're in that situation, it's because you got yourself there, not God. That's the picture I think sometimes people think about God. And we talk about God's blessing us, and we talk about God helping us, and we, you know, sometimes, you know, in social media, we hashtag it blessings, right? But as we look here in Genesis 42 to 45, my goal this morning is that you would see that God is not so interested in making your life happy and healthy as he is revealing himself to you in his heart of compassion, his heart of reconciliation, and he wants to reveal that to you as he tests you in the process to help you to see that and to see some things about yourself in 2 Corinthians first, chapter 3, verse 18, it says, And we, with all, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from this one degree of glory to another. In, in the sense, what he's saying there is that as we observe who Christ is, it transforms us. As we see who God is, that is what transforms us. Well, the problem is we go through life a lot of times, especially when we're pursuing health or comfort, We go through life more asleep than awake. We go through life more interested in just finding things that are comfortable for us, and we we only see things through that lens, and we don't see the God who really loves us and who wants to interact with us. And if we don't see him, then we aren't changed. And if we don't see him, we aren't truly comforted. We're just giving temporary comforts. And I want you to see as we go through Genesis chapter 42 to 45, I want you to see a picture of a different God. Not a God who's just interested in your comfort, nor a God who's just interested in your health, but a God who loves you enough to reveal himself to you, even in the midst of struggle and hardship, to walk with you through them and help you to see his heart for you and his heart for others as well. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 42 to 45. And as we go through here this morning, um, it is four chapters, so I'm not going to read all four chapters straight through. Forgive me for that. Um, but my, my argument partially for that is all the way through, if you read through the story, it repeats the plot. It, what, what happens in the plot is then repeated and told. And every single time, the whole, throughout this, this, this section of the thing, the, the whole plot is repeated every time. Like, it happens, then it's talked about. It's happened, then it's talked about. And there's two, two reasons for that, I think. One is, remember back with Joseph's dreams, you get that, that J- Joseph saying to Pharaoh, if the, your dream is repeated twice, just to show you that, that this is really going to happen. And here, this, this echo from that here in Genesis 42 to 45 of this is still, God is rarely mentioned, but God, you can still see God's hand in all of this. God is fully involved in what is going on. Also, as you're you're going to see, people talk about their lives. They talk about their stories. We do it too, and we're going to see examples of that over and over again, of people talking about what's going on in their lives. And I think a third reason is because what you see is all the actors telling the truth. All All the players involved in the story, they're telling the truth. They're not lying. They're not making up stuff. They're just telling the truth for what it is, except one person, and that's Joseph. He has this secret knowledge, if you will, So let's look at Genesis chapter 42, 
starting in verse 1, and, and I'll, I'll read sections and I'll summarize sections as we go here. It says, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? <laughs> kind of like, why do you look with long faces at one another? Like, what are we going to do here? He's like, there's a solution. Let's go to Egypt. Go down and get, buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So here we see, again, God's in control of this entire situation. He started this famine in Egypt, but it's affecting not only Egypt, but Canaan as well. And Jacob and his sons don't have food. And now Jacob's like, go down, get food from Egypt. And they go down there. Probably a long line of people going down from Canaan to get food, right? They get there, and to summarize, right, Joseph recognizes his brothers. Joseph, they come in, he recognizes them, and instead of like being like, hey, I'm Joseph, he, he conceals who he is, and he accuses them of being spies. Accuses them of being spies, and they're like, no, we're not spies. Look, if we were spies, why, we're, we're all ten brothers. Why would we be spies and send ten brothers down from one family just to, just to get food, to spy out the land? But Joseph throws them in jail overnight, and then comes and tells them, look, I fear God. You can prove your case. Nine of you can go back. Get your one brother that you talked about who's still alive and uh, bring him down and prove that that brother exists and I'll believe your story. And so he selects Simeon to, to stay until they return. He also tells his steward, put their, put their money back in their bags and send them on their way. So they, they leave, leaving Simeon behind, and, which is, again, not untypical for their brothers, right? They've left, multiple, you know, they've left Joseph behind. They've sold him to slavery. This is not anything new to, to be able to leave their brothers behind, a brother behind. And they head back. They discover their money in their bags, and they're very frightened. They return to their father, and they tell their father everything that's happened, that they need to bring Benjamin back. Uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob's not happy, right? He's like, what do you mean? You guys must have messed up if you had to give all this information away about who we are and our family, that you had another brother, and now he's insisting you bring us back. He's like, yeah. he's like you guys messed up. Like, well, look, there's the money in their backs, and they're frightened. All of them are frightened. They're like, what is going on? They can't figure out why this is happening to them. Eventually, they run out of food. They're back where they started again. And they're arguing. Reuben's like, hey, send us down. If, if we don't come back with Benjamin, you can kill my two sons. <laughs> like, Judah, Jacob doesn't go for that. Eventually, Judah says, look, if, if we don't come back with Benjamin, you can hold it to my account. You can take my life. I, I'm the one. I'll take responsibility for Benjamin. Jacob finally gives in. He says, go down. If, if, I, if, if he perishes, I perish, and it's just the way it's going to be. And, but we'll believe in, and hope in God's mercy. When they get down there, Joseph sees that they've arrived. He sees Benjamin with him, and he says to his steward, just set them up to, to, to meet me for lunch, basically. <laughs> it's a working lunch. Uh, meet me for lunch, 
and uh, set them up to do that. And so they, they, they realize they're invited for lunch and they're confused. They're like, oh, okay, we're, gonna be, we're, we're still in trouble. And so they go to the steward and they say, hey, look, we, we had this money in our bags that we paid for and, uh, and, and we don't know where it came from, but uh, you know, we want to give it back. He's like, no, I've got your money. Actually, God, God must have given you money because I've got, I've got your money. It, uh, let Simeon go. And they sit down to to lunch. And they have a good time at lunch. Benjamin gets, uh, he gets five times the amount that everyone else gets to eat. But the brothers don't comment. They, they leave lunch. They get their, their, their food and they start heading back with Benjamin and Simeon back to Canaan. But Joseph uh, sends his steward after them because he had told his steward to plant his, his cup, the cup that he used at, at lunch, uh, in Benjamin's bag. And so they go, they, the steward catches them as they're heading out of Egypt and, and investigates all their bags. And they're like, hey, we didn't steal anything. If anyone, you know, if anyone stole anything, his life is forfeit. Like, he, he should die because he, you know, again, the brothers, are, they're always, like, overstating their, uh, the consequences to defend themselves. And they find the cup in Benjamin's bag. And so they're all upset now. And so they come back and Joseph says, look, you know, did, did you realize I was going to catch this? I you know I've, I've got the powers of divination. I, I, I can know what's happening with my cup. You're not going to hide it from me, so to speak. And Judah's like, look, uh, let me take Benjamin's place and be your slave. Because that's what Joseph was saying. You guys can leave. I'll just take Benjamin as my slave. And, and Judah Judah pleads for Benjamin's life, but also, but he, but he doesn't plead for that as much as he pleads for his father's life. He says, look, if, if we go back and Benjamin's not with us, my father will die. At that point, Judah, Joseph breaks down. He kicks all of his attendants, all of the Egyptians out of his house, and he reveals himself to his brothers. And he talks to them about what God had done in this story. God was doing in this story. The, the brothers return to their father, and of course they have to confess, uh, yeah, we didn't, he didn't actually die uh, via a wild animal. Uh, we sold him into slavery. But, hey, God has him as you know, second in command in Egypt. And initially Jacob does not believe it, but eventually he does, and they head down to Egypt to join Joseph there. So in this story... This long story, <laughs> what do we see? And as we look at this, what I want you to see is that, again, the big idea is that God tests us in order to reveal his heart of compassion and reconciliation in us. God tests us in order to reveal his heart of compassion and reconciliation in us. And the first point that I want you to see here is that we must see the severe mercy of God testing us to reveal and grow our love for him and others. So what I want you to think about here, first of all, is that why does Joseph do this? Joseph sees his brother for the first time in years. He recognizes them. He could be like, hey, guys, I'm Joseph. You know, how's it going? You meant it to be, you know, you meant to, to throw me away and look at how, here's, here I am. But he doesn't do that initially. He has this secret knowledge that his brothers don't have. He knows who he is. He knows who they are. And what I want you to notice is that 
is that Joseph did this. You say, well, why did Joseph do this? Is Joseph doing this because, if he's, is he not revealing himself because maybe he just wants revenge, right? Like, hey, you, I suffered, you're going to suffer. Because he does throw Simeon in jail for, you know, at least a couple months, right? Or maybe Joseph wanted to see them repent, right? He was like, oh, I'm going to get you. You're going to finally repent and then I'll, I'll, I'll reveal myself to you. Or maybe he's like, hey, I, I, want you to, I want you at least to trust that you'll actually do the right thing next time. I'm gonna, I, want you to, I want you to at least have a little bit of trust that you're not going to stab me in the back again, and then I'll tell you who I am. But I don't think it's any of those exclusively. I think overall, and as we'll look at here, he, he has a different desire. He wants them to see what God is doing in this situation. He wants them to see not just who, who he is, but who God is and who they are in a new light. And that is why he tests them. And, and in some ways, God, Joseph steps into the role of God in this story. He steps into that role because he has secret knowledge that they don't have, just like, in a sense, God has secret knowledge that, that we don't have. He, he knows a bigger picture. He has the, the full and complete picture of our lives in, in, in mind when he interacts with us, when he sees us. So how do, how do I know that? Well, let's just notice a few verses here. Genesis chapter 42, if you will. Genesis 42, verse 8. Notice what it says. And Joseph recognized his brothers. But they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. <laughs> I love that turn, right? He sees them. And what is, the, what is the, at least one of the first things that come to his mind? Well, they're all bowing down before him, right? And he's reminded, oh, I dreamed about this. And you remember that he dreamed about that in, in the context of all the internal conflict and the fighting and being viewed as the favorite of his father, which he was, and, and wanting to unite the family back together again. And he's realizing, you know, you know what? This is not just, okay, now I get to prove that, that I was right back then. Guys, you guys are bowing down. I was right. That dream was from God. No. He, what he wants to do is, is not to prove his own rightness. What he wants to do is to help them to see something else about who God is. Like that God was in control. That, that God had a, a something else going on here that, that they had missed all along. Notice in Genesis chapter 44. So I'm going to jump kind of through the story here. Genesis chapter 44 verse 16 when, when they're caught, Judah says, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whom the cup has been found. He's saying, look, we're all... <laughs> he doesn't try to be like, hey, I don't know how this happened. Because he, he realizes that it's not going to work. He's like, we're guilty. The thing that they were hiding and hiding and hiding was their guilt about Joseph. But they were willing to reveal it, to reveal that about themselves. Verse 34 of chapter 44. For how can I go back? To, and this is how Judah ends his whole argument. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. You, you realize that that's what they didn't do with Joseph, Right? They were willing to sell him into slavery and not care about that, the effect on their father. 
They were willing to kill Joseph and not willing about the, worry about the effect on their father. But here, Judah is concerned, finally, about his father. Notice then how Joseph talks to his brothers at the end. Genesis 45, verse 4. Genesis 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Notice what he's saying here. He's not like, you guys were idiots before. I was right, you were wrong. What is he saying? He's like, you got to realize God was doing something even with what you were doing. God was doing something for our good to, 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 to rescue our family and to bring us together. God always, when he tests us, he's always wanting to reveal something about who he is to us. He wants us to know who he is. And the problem is, is that we, we go through life often just asleep. We're thinking, oh, well, I've got to get this, this job done, and I've got to get, make this much for the year, and I've got to save this much for retirement, and I've got to oh, hopefully, uh, hopefully nothing goes wrong with all my plans. And in the midst of life, we forget that God is with us, that he wants us to know him in the midst of this life that we're living And he brings things into our lives that are difficult and hard and we're confused about and we're even frightened about, but it's for the goal of helping us to know who he is. This is a different view of God than a God who's just out for my therapy to make me feel better about myself or about my life. Proverbs 17 verse 3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests hearts. The idea here is that God God is in the process of bringing, in a sense, heat into our lives in order to see what comes out, right? And it's not just that he's revealing something about us. He's also helping us in the process to see who he is in that process. You know, it's like uh, testing is a lot like uh, tea, my... The one who drinks a lot of tea in our house is one of my daughters, and, and she'll, in the morning, she'll grab, grab tea, make tea immediately, right? You know, when you make tea, you know, you use hot water. Why? Because the heat of the water brings out the essence of the tea, right? And sometimes you want black tea, sometimes you want green tea, sometimes you want oolong tea. I don't know, there's a lot of different teas out there these days, Right? But those, those, you want the different properties that are there, and they're designed to, 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 to bring something out. And so the Lord is in the process of, of, of bringing things out of our lives, not so that we can just be like, look, you failed, but for the purpose of helping us to see who he is in the midst of that. James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He's not saying, God is not in the process of saying, look, I want to see if you fail or not. Joseph here in this story is not saying, brothers, I want to see you fail. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to help them see who God is in the midst of everything that's going on and who they are, the real version of them in a sense. Because the real version comes out. They, they realize that they love each other. They're willing to, 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 to care for Benjamin and not leave him behind. One that's willing to care for their father and not write him off as the old man who only, has, only plays favorites. There's a phrase out there, and I think it's true, testing is tailor-made for each one of us. God tests us individually. You can't sit there and be like, well, I, I've got this test. I wish, I, but th- this person over there, they're having a different test. I wish I had their test. <laughs> I wish I had their problems. I wish I had their issues. No, testing is tailor-made for each one of us so that he can reach down into our individual hearts and help us to know him and help us to, to grow in our knowledge of him and our love for him. Testing is tailor-made because he realizes that we're all individuals, that we all have individual issues and individual challenges, and he's, he's seeking to, to draw us out. And that's why I chose the title I did this morning for, when I called it The Severe Mercy, Weaving the Severe Mercy of God Through Your Story. Because, in a sense, it's mercy that God is reaching into your life and revealing himself to you and revealing yourself to yourself so that you can properly relate to him and others. It's mercy, but it's a severe mercy. It's difficult. It's hard. And in fact, C.S. Lewis used this with a friend of his named Sheldon Van Auken. I don't know if you've ever read the story. It's, it's called A Severe Mercy. <laughs> That's what Sheldon titled it, A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Auken. What, he, what happened was, was uh, he met his wife, when they were young in college and they, they realized how much they loved, them, loved each other and so they, they got married and they, they created what this, what this, in a sense, this shining barrier that would keep their, their love unique and together and it would keep them together and not separated because they realized there's a lot of things that pull people apart in our world and so like, we're going to stay together. We love each other and we want to keep this relationship going forever in a sense. Well, then God comes into the picture they're talking to C.S. Lewis at one point, and he shares the gospel with them, and, and they trust in Christ. They, 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 they understand they need to trust in him for, for salvation from sin, and they do that. And his wife really goes wholeheartedly after God. She's reading her Bible. She's pursuing that, and, and then she gets sick. She gets cancer, and she's pretty severe. It looks like she's headed for death. And uh, she asks for another year from God, and God gives them another year of good health, but then ultimately she dies. Sheldon is obviously distraught, sad, angry, questioning why. Why, why would this happen? I thought, I thought God wanted us to love each other and to, to, to do this together. And C.S. Lewis wrote to him and said, this is a severe mercy, a severe mercy from God. But 
So Sheldon considered and thought, what is God revealing about himself? What is God revealing about who I am and, and, and who he is in, in, in relation to that. And he, and he realized over time that, that the problem was is that once, once Christ came into the picture, once they had trusted in Christ, this, there was this breach between, it was, it was no longer Sheldon, Sheldon and his wife, it was now Sheldon, his wife, and Jesus. Like, like it wasn't just two of them anymore, it was three. And, and there was a sense in which Sheldon was jealous of God, <laughs> Because his wife was consumed with, you know, reading her Bible, loving God, serving God, doing all the, in a sense, good things. But Sheldon's like, but I want to go, you know, sail on a boat together and just be the two of us again. And God can kind of ride in the back seat for a while. Like, it's just us, right? And, and he realized if it had gone on long enough, he would have been more and more and more jealous of God. And jealousy, when it happens like that, you push God more and more and more out rather than letting him in. He wrote this at the end of his book. Only love himself that is God with a severe mercy could breach the shining barrier and by breaching it, save that guarded love for the eternity it longed for. He had to step back and realize that God was doing something bigger than just giving them 50 years together, 60 years together of of love He was giving them an eternity of love with him, with others, in a way that they couldn't have imagined before. And this is the severe mercy of God. He's not just interested in you living your comfortable life and and having everything work out in your plans and living 70 or 80 or even 100 years or even 150 years and then dying and being separated from him and others forever. He loves you enough to create severe mercies in your life and help you to realize, I need God. I need his heart for me. I need what he's doing in my life. And I want you to see two things about the heart of God from this story that God wants to reveal to us in the midst of testing. Point number two is we must see the heart of compassion God has for us in the midst of testing. The compassion God has for us in the midst of testing. If God is testing us to reveal who he is and who we are so that we can properly relate to him and to ourselves better, then you must see God's compassion in doing that. Notice the story mentions three times that Joseph weeps. Genesis, the first one is Genesis chapter 42 and verse 24 Genesis 42, verse 24 says, Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound them before his eyes. This is right after they're like, man, this is, this is terrible what's happening. We've got to leave Simeon behind. And they're like, this is, they start this internal argument in, in Hebrew, which they assume Joseph doesn't understand. And they're like, hey, this is all because we sold Joseph into slavery. You know, God's getting back at us, so to speak. And, and they're, they're, they're arguing with each other. And Joseph hears the argument. And Reuben's like, I told you guys so. I told you we shouldn't have done that. You know what I mean? It's all the things that probably Joseph had never heard before because he was in the pit or he was walking toward them and they're arguing about it and they're just arguing about the fact that they have this issue going on and Joseph weeps but he keeps going with the test. Then in Joseph chapter 43 verse 30 
As, as they come back with Benjamin, it says, verse 30 says, Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he enters his chamber and wept there. The first time he sees Benjamin, his brother, after all these years, you can not just imagine just seeing him, but he knows what, the, the, what Benjamin grew up with. He knows how the brothers hate, hate the, the, the sons of Rachel. They hate the favoritism that J- Jacob had. He knows all of these things about his brother, and he's still in the midst of this, but he has this compassion for his brother. And then, of course, Genesis 45, verse 1 says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me, so no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, so loud that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Again, Joseph is weeping all the way through this test. God has compassion for us, even in the midst of the things that are going on, even in this midst where he's trying to reveal it to us. He's not doing it with a sense of, well, you better figure this out for yourself. He's doing it with heart of compassion. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And we we see in the midst of the story three mentions of God's mercy, provision, and grace. Genesis 43, verse 14, right after Judah makes this promise to his father, about Benjamin, he says, may God grant you mercy before the man and may he send you back your father, your brother and Benjamin. These, God starts to re-enter the story here and it's about God's mercy. Genesis 43, the, the steward replies to them, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks. I received your money. Peace, don't be afraid. He's like, God provided for you. I didn't provide it for you. And then Genesis 43, verse 29, or 44, verse 29, it says, He lifted up his eyes and saw Benjamin, his brother, his mother's son. Is this your youngest brother of whom God spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. That's Joseph talking to Benjamin. God be gracious to you. You see, God, the brothers had pushed God out of their lives. They were angry with Jacob. They were angry about how all the favoritism worked. They were, they were trying to live in this system where they were trying to figure out, well, who's going to be the top? Who's going to be the best? Because that's the person God's going to work with. And they didn't realize that God wanted to work with all of them. And God starts to come back into the story. Have, has your story sometimes been like that? It feels like you're always running the rat race. God never seems to enter in because you're always worried about, well, who's going to be on top? Uh, how's how's uh, my 401k going to turn out? How's my life going to turn out? What, what is it going to mean? I, and you're all worried about all these things, and you forget that God is there in your life with a heart of compassion toward you. He wants to be merciful to you. James 5 verse 11 says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God is merciful to us. And it's a severe mercy. I get it. No one likes to go through a test. No one likes to to feel like, what's going on with my life? I can't figure it out. I thought I had the plan. I knew what was happening and now it's going sideways. No one likes that, but God has compassion for you in the midst of that. He has has this heart of compassion for you. Hebrews chapter 12 then tells us what to do with that knowledge. He's talking about being disciplined by 
by our Father, our Heavenly Father, and he compares it to discipline from our earthly fathers. He says, verse 9, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He's saying, keep going down the path. Don't don't get caught up in, in turning aside or quitting Keep going down the path. I'm reminded, uh, obviously, different uh, films have different great points in them, but um, Frozen 2. I'm going to bring in Frozen 2 for all the kids here. Um, It it looks like she's at the end, you know, the magic's disappeared, um, Elsa's gone, uh, and and, uh, the snowman is is fluttered away to nothing, right? And, And what does she say? Do the next right thing, right? And just keep moving forward, doing the next right thing, because in the dark, you don't know what the next step is. And if you believe that God has a compassion, a heart of compassion for you in the confusion, in the difficulty, in the, in the I don't know what's going on, even in the fear, do the next right thing, because God has a heart of compassion for you. That's what he's saying in Hebrews chapter 12. Make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. It's like, just keep going because God has a plan to bring everything back together. We must not only see God's heart of compassion, we must also see, so there's Hebrews 12 there, I guess. We must also see how Jesus' love for his Father initiated our reconciliation. We must see how Jesus' love for his Father initiated our reconciliation. And this is, an amazing part of the story, right? Because it's not just Joseph that's involved here. Joseph initiates the test. He's like, you know, you're spies. And they're like, no, we're not. And bring your brother, your youngest brother, and prove you're not spies. And they come, and then he accuses Benjamin. But what's also going on is Judah. Judah, who initiated the idea, right, of, hey, you know, let's not just kill Joseph, let's make some money off the deal. Let's sell him into slavery and split up the proceeds. That Judah is the Judah that's now, hey, uh, let's care about our father. The father who never really cared about him necessarily, right? And always played favorites and Judah wasn't it. But Judah doesn't care anymore. Judah's like, Let's care for our Father. Let's, let's look out for His needs, right? Notice, again, this is, this is an amazing passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 40, verse 30, where he ta- he's talking to Joseph, and he's explaining why he wants to take the place of Benjamin. He says, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your, your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, that is Benjamin, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the great hairs of your servant, my our father, with sorrow to Sheol, that is the grave. 
For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the first time in Scripture, the first time in Scripture, that someone offers his life in place of another. The first time. And it's Judah. Judah, who (laughs) was willing to sell his brother, is now willing to give his life to save his father and to save his brother. And of course, this echoes the same thing that Jesus did for us. He came to this earth because he loves his father. Genesis, John chapter 14, verse 31 says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know I love the Father. Why did he go to the cross? Why did he die in our place for our sins? Because he loves the Father. Because he knows the Father loves us. Right? John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves us. And so the son is willing to give his life to love the father and to rescue us. This is the heart that God has for this family. This is the heart that God has for the world. God didn't want this family to just sit there fractured, hating each other, playing favorites with each other, being willing to murder each other. He didn't want them to let them stay there, but he had a severe mercy in place where Joseph gets sent to Egypt, and then he gets all the things that happened to him there, and then then the brothers come, and all of that's a severe mercy. Why? To, To not just reunite the family and say, oh, now you can exist together again but so that they can say, look, God loves us and we can love each other and we can give our lives for one another and we can have that kind of love when we could never have had it before. This is the severe mercy of God. This is the heart of God. He has a heart of compassion. He has a heart for reconciliation. Jesus came not just to show off his father, he came to rescue the world, to reconcile the world back to God. We are all, in that sense, part of this family of God. And we are part of that family because Jesus gave his life for us. In a commentary by Bruce Waltke, Waltke comments, both Joseph and Judah prefigure Jesus Christ. With regard to Joseph, the father's favorite son, is sent to his brothers. They sell their guiltless brother for 20 pieces of silver, and he becomes their Lord. The the Joseph story also provides a remarkable parallel of Christ's death. God decides beforehand that through wicked hands he will nail Christ to the cross and so save the world. Judah, on the other hand, is the first person in Scripture who willingly offers his own life for another. His self-sacrificing love for his brother for the sake of his father prefigures the vicarious atonement of Christ who, by his voluntary sufferings, heals the breach between God and human beings. Joseph gets the double portion, but Judah gets the eternal kingship. 
And again, we're back to this big idea. God tests us so that his part of compassion and reconciliation can be revealed in our lives. Because how did Judah get here? How did he go from willing to sell his brother into slavery to, yeah, take me a slave, don't kill my father? It was through his sin, where he sinned with his daughter-in-law, this Gentile woman who he probably viewed as more as property or than as a person. And then yet, he had the realization, she is more righteous than I. By being confronted with his sin, it changed his life. And so God tests us. He tested Judah, and he tests Judah again to reveal to the world this heart for his family, the heart that he was willing to leave his family. He was willing to, to go away and, and, and forget them and do his own thing and have other friends and other pursuits. And yet, in the end, he's willing to die for his father. So God's goal in all of this is to bring this family back together, to bring them back together, not just in existence, but in intimacy and love This is why God is the rock of our salvation. He does not change. His heart does not change. He is in the process of moving us this direction. In some senses, you're like Joseph in the story. You have a secret knowledge of all of mankind. God loves them. You know he sent Jesus because he desires everyone to be saved. And therefore, you can reach out to people in love because this is true. You can be patient, kind, forgiving, wise, gracious, caring. Why? Because you know God's heart of love, just like Joseph did. You can also seek to, to, to share that love just like Judah did. To say, I know what, I'm willing to, to, to give up my rights, my willingness to have things my way in order to bless those around me. You can say, well, how do I, how do I know if God is testing me? It's <laughs> a great question. How do I know? Simple question. Are you being asked to trust God? <laughs> Is there some area of your life where you're like, I don't, I don't know what, what's going on here. I don't understand. <laughs> Are you being asked to trust God to do the next right thing when you can't see all the way to the end? Are you being challenged to act righteously towards someone who has act, acted right, unrighteously toward you? Are, you? are you asked to, to look with faith James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Some questions you can ask yourself, maybe like, what promises has God kept? What promises would you like him to keep that you feel he hasn't kept yet? What promises have you made, and how are you trying to keep them? How do you think your, God has set up your situation for you to see him and yourself better? 
Be something for you to meditate on, maybe this week when you have a few minutes. Like, what is, I'm confused about my situation. I don't understand what God is doing. Well, how do you think God has set up your situation for you to see him and yourself better? What has it made you long for? You see, they were all longing to really be a family, but they had given up on that longing. They decided, this, this, is, this is never going to happen. We're always going to hate each other, and we're always going to not, not be concerned about each other. We're, we're always going to be at odds with each other. That's just the way things are. <laughs> and then God steps into the picture and does something, and then it's all changed. God tests us in order that we could see his heart of compassion and his heart of reconciliation in our lives Have you experienced the severe mercy of God? I'm sure you have if you're a believer, because he says God tests all of his children. How do you talk about that? What does that look like? Because part of what's going on here is they keep telling the story over and over and over again. And, and part of what you have to do in the midst of, both in the midst of testing and in the at the end, is you're, you keep telling the story. Like, what have I learned? What, what, what do I think? What do I think's going on here? Just an example in my own life. I think um, I like to, to invest in things that I know will produce, produce right? Like, nobody likes to just like, oh, invest in things, and who cares if anything happens, right? As a, as a pastor, you're, like, you're, you're trying to invest in people's lives. You want them to, to grow in their love for God and others. And you rejoice when you see that happening. And, and you, wanna, you want that to continue. You want that to build. You want that to, to, to be played out. You want to see that. So obviously one of the hearts I have is you, you start to invest in people and, and you want them to stay around to, to, to see what God is going to do in their lives. And, but that's not this church, right? Like that's not Ames. People come here in order to be here for a while and then leave again, right? That's just part of Ames. You know, a severe mercy in my life has been the sense of I'm going to invest in people and they're going to, some of them are going to stay. I'm going to rejoice when that happens. Some of them are going to leave and God's going to use them other places. And sometimes they leave and they, they, their faith breaks down and they, at least for now, move on from God. But sometimes, sometimes they, they keep going for God. And in the midst of all of that, the severe mercy is, what does that tell me about me? Like, I, I, is, is my heart for, well, I have to be seen to, I have to have, to have all this in place, or I, I want to be seen for this. Or is it a matter of, man, look, I, I have God. He loves me. He cares for me. He, 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 if, if, I don't have, if I have nothing else, at least I have God. Which would, it ra- which would I rather have? Well, in my flesh, I would rather be just like, well, show off how great I am. <laughs> but in the Spirit, it's much more, oh man, isn't it great to have God? Isn't it great to know He's in my life? Isn't it great to know that He's with me, guiding me, helping me, that His heart doesn't change? You, you, you realize that, right? God never changes God doesn't change all the way through this story. His heart of compassion is is the same in Genesis 37 as it is in Genesis 45. The problem is the brothers don't see it. And so God works through everything that takes place in order for them to see how much he loves them and reunites them back together. 
what do you see about God? Is he a God who's just, yeah, he's out for my, I hope he blesses me, and I hope, uh, I hope I have a great day, and I hope he doesn't mess up my plans, and I hope, or do you see that God is, he's like, I'm here, and you don't see it, and I want you to see it. I love you, and you don't see it, and I want you to see it. You see, that testing is not a testing in order to say you better pass the test. The testing is a matter of saying, look what's here. Look what's really happening. That's the whole point of a cup of tea. Is, is it not to say, I wonder if the cup of tea will pass the test? It's, it's a matter of us saying, this is what's really here. And you say, well, I failed. I, I sinned. You know what? Even in the midst of our sin, God's compassion and reconciliation is still there. It doesn't leave when we fail. It doesn't go away when we mess up. The the point of testing is for us to see who God is, even, even when we fail. So will you approach God like this? Will you see God like this? That he's active in your life, procreating, prodding, doing things. You're like, oh, this is scary. (laughs) Or, oh, I don't know what's going on. Or, you're just like the brothers. We're all like them. We don't know half of the things that are going on, and we're wondering what in the world is going on. But God is in the midst. God is at work. You can trust him. His heart of compassion and reconciliation is always there. He just wants you to see it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here, that you promise to never leave us or forsake us. And you make all of these promises to us so that when you show up and you are there and we finally see you, we see that you keep the promises that you make way better than we do. We thank you for the example of Judah who changed in the midst of his sin. We thank you for the example of Joseph who shows a heart of compassion rather than revenge. And Lord, we see Jesus in the midst of this. A Jesus who looks at this broken world divided by racism and hatred and war and famine and disease and death. A a world that questions whether God exists and if he exists, whether he's any good at all. And he came and he died for us. To not only help us to see the heart of compassion and reconciliation that you have, but also to give us eternal life in you. Help us to see that in the midst of our lives. And help us to look forward to being reunited with you again one day. In your son's name, the king who gave his life for us. In his name.